As you can see on the slide behind me, on the screen behind me, we're, we're starting a new series. Um, yes, brand new. Looking at um, the first letter to the Corinthians. Um, and as is our want, we have produced a very fancy study guide to go along. I know. Um, the, we've done these in the past for previous books, and, and they've proved to be very helpful. Different ones of you have contributed to this. There's a stack of them over on the information desk over there. Can I suggest you take one per household rather than one each at the moment? See how we've got, and I'm not sure how many were printed off. Um, so take that and please use it. In a moment, we're going to look at a little video after I've introduced where we're going. Um, and I think there's a link to the Bible Project. Some of you have seen those Bible Project um, sort of animations, um, which we're going to look at in a moment. There's also a link to that in the booklet. So lots of resources coming out, coming your way in your connect groups. There'll be stuff to look at as well. So 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 1 in just a moment. But just first of all, a, a little bit about Corinth in the day, back in the day. Corinth was situated, and again, there's a map in this thing, very helpful map in here, 45 miles west of Athens. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Um, it was destroyed in 146 BC and rebuilt by Julius Caesar a hundred years later. And it was primarily populated by freed men from Rome. So it was a brand, it was a new city when Paul went there. And he went there probably because it was on a major trade route. The rebuilt city quickly became one of the wealthiest cities of its time. But it was also a decadent city, a liberal city. You could, in, in those days, a term was coined to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize came to mean to go with a prostitute. That just gives you a little bit of a flavor of what that city was like. But they were a proud city. They had their own games to rival the ancient games in Athens. They attracted the best athletes. They had some of the richest merchants. And they saw themselves as the city. Well, it's a bit like today. We all know that London is better than Paris or New York, don't we? You know. <laughs> I don't know if it's a bit like that or not. But they, they, they were a young upstart city who thought they were the best. Um, the letter to the Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul with the help of his mate Sosthenes. Um, and it was written around about A.D. 55 or 57, something like that. Now, that's a little bit about ancient Corinth. I'm going to attempt to talk over, do a narrative over the, the video that's going to come in just a moment to give us a bit about the letter to 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm deliberately doing this live because I've had to edit this down I hope I can keep up with the very fast-moving video. Let's see how we can get on, shall we? So let's put up this, the, the next slide and we'll go for it. Here we go. So this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians written to a church community Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic centre, so Paul strategically went there as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there, 
talking to them about Jesus. Lots of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 18. After a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities and then started to get reports that things weren't going well back in Corinth. It was plagued by all sorts of problems and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts along with its final greeting. Uh, The sections correspond with the main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a series of short essays on the different topics. But there are these core ideas that unite it together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. You see the glasses up there looking at that. So let's see how he does it. In chapters 1 to 4, the problem is there that there are divisions in the church. There were some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favourite teacher and then become groupies around that leader and then started to disrespect people who favoured another leader. So Paul's response is really sarcastic and sharp. He's like, you're joking. The church isn't a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centred on Jesus. Its leaders and teachers are simply servants of Christ. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not worth speaking bad of others. The centre of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. There we go. That's the pressure off now. (laughs) I even had to slow down, didn't I? That was not bad. So, but... But I think that's a helpful overview. And next week, you'll see up on this bare wall over here, there'll be the complete um, animation done, done as a picture, which, you, which is a really good resource. But you can also see those videos done with a very well-spoken American accent, not mine. We're really going to focus on one verse as we look at this first section of 1 Corinthians. But I'm going to read the first 17 verses The verse we're going to focus on is really verse 10. But 1 Corinthians 1, reading from verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It should come up on the screen behind me. It says, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people, He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way. With all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge, This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this 
for he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptised in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I didn't baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptised in my name. And I love this. Oh, yeah. I also baptised the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptising anyone else. <laughs> it's funny. Oh, you think, why didn't he just cross, it, cross that first bit out? But anyway, <laughs> an aside. Verse 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. So Paul shows the new Christians in Corinth that life's challenges and problems should be seen through the lens of the gospel, like we saw in that little animation. And 1 Corinthians challenges us as believers today to do exactly the same thing. I mean, it's obvious, but it's worth stating. And as we've seen, Paul specifically addresses some key things as we go through this letter, and this will unfold over the coming weeks. Divisions in the church, attitudes to sex and relationships, attitudes to food, to worship gatherings, and to the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're going to focus on the first of those issues, which is division in the church. I'm going to read verse 10 again, where Paul says to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. This, this verse is pivotal. Some people would argue this verse is pivotal to the whole, um, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, where it sort of summarises where the whole thing's going. Paul wants to remind them of the teaching of Jesus. New Christians, don't forget. And it seems to be a response, as we've already seen, to some of Chloe's people. We don't know much about Chloe, but she... Chloe's people or family or friends. I mean, people have speculated she probably was someone who hosted one of the church groups in her home amongst her extended family or possibly a wealthy businesswoman or both. But she highlighted that there's division in the church. Enough, it was enough for her to report it to Paul and it was enough for him to respond quite seriously. There's division in the church. Paul, some of them are lining up behind, well, some of them are championing you. And some are getting behind Apollos or Peter. And some are being a bit more sort of high and mighty and saying, well, we follow Christ only. And as a, how does he address what is a serious issue? How does he address division 
the first part, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time around verse 10. The first part of verse 10, he says, I appeal to you by the authority of Jesus. By pointing them to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the one who has united us. And we only have to look around us as a church, don't we, to see such broad diversity. Different income levels, different nationalities, different ages, different attitudes, different experiences united in Christ. And we can apply these words to ourselves. We don't want division. We don't want division amongst us. Let me just, I just want to reiterate the stuff about Jesus. This is by the authority of Jesus. Let me read you some words that are well known to some describing Christ from Colossians chapter 1. Again from the New Living Translation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything on, in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's huge, isn't it? That's why we're here. It's Christ is why we're here. It's Christ is why we live, isn't it? It's in Christ that the most diverse of peoples can become one. A new body with Christ as the head. Together, whatever your background, whatever your life experience, it's in Christ that division can be turned to unity. Ten times in the first ten verses, Paul specifically uses the name of Jesus. It's not a mistake he's done that. He's underlining, he's reinforcing, he's emphasising the fact that the Corinthians are part of Christ's community. City Hope, we are part of Christ's community. A body of believers united with him as head so that we should display, they should display his character. But they're not. They're divided into factions. Chloe must have observed that and gone, oh, Paul's done so well. He preached here. We gathered a church. He's gone off to Ephesus or wherever else he was preaching. And now, look, I'm going to have to write to him. I'm going to have to send a message to him. And Paul took it serious. And he's written back. Verse 13, has Christ been divided into factions, he says? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptised in the name of Paul? Of course not, he said. You can almost hear the frustration in his words, can't you? It's like, was I, Paul, crucified for you? What are you talking about? Is Christ divided? No. But the behaviour of the Corinthian church makes it look like the answer is yes. Because the body of Christ 
is warring against itself. By allowing division and cliques and subgroups, they've created a situation that speaks against the very character of Christ. You know, in, the, in our nation, we live in a more and more divided society, don't we? It just seems to get worse and worse. And there's divisions over religion, there's division over race, there's division over politics, there's division over football. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's the skilled and the unskilled, right? I I read an account, I was was reading a book about barristers just the other day. And, yeah, like you do. (laughs) It's called Secret Barrister. It's fascinating. It's an insight into the legal processes. Anyway, but there was an an illustration, an account in that story, in in this book, of a man who was up in court for beating up his neighbour. And do you know why he beat up his neighbour? They had a dispute over an overhanging tree from one garden to another. He elected for a crown court trial. That's irrelevant to this. But that's an illustration of division. They were fighting over a tree hanging over to somebody else's boundary. That's a good example of division, isn't it? We don't want that in the church, do we? No. But sometimes there is division in the church. We may not be punching each other because we're too polite to do that. But we can be so focused on our personal calls, our personal uh, campaigns, our personal beliefs, that it can become divisive. And those views can easily overflow into the body of Christ. You don't know what he said to me. How dare she say that? How dare she do that? He upset me. I've got every right to be angry. I've got every right not to talk to him again. Do we want that in the church? I mean, it's very low level, but that can have a massive impact, which is, I think, why Paul's writing to these people. They say, well, no, I follow you, Paul. I follow your teaching. I like you. I think, no, this is about Christ over all. Is there division here in City Hope? I think we're pretty good at being one, right? I think we're good at being united in our diversity but we should always ask the question and maybe as an individual you've had issues with somebody and you you might grit your teeth and say good morning on a Sunday but you don't ever want them around your house and you're and you're not going to you're not going to invite them to your birthday party right but can you see I want to ask you a question. Do you need to put something right with someone here? I'm not asking you to put your hand up, by the way. (laughs) But ask yourself, do I really need to put something? Is there somebody I need to forgive? And incidentally, just very practically, I've been on the receiving end of this before. People have come up to me and I've been totally oblivious of what I've said or done. And they've come up to you and said, Paul, I forgive you. <laughs> I, think, well, I, I didn't know I'd done anything wrong. Maybe that's not the best way to do it, but somehow make that connection. Make, 
division will stifle us. It will, division will stifle the work of the Holy Spirit through us and in us. But unity, unity provides a... Unity is like fertile, fertile soil where things can grow and flourish and develop. For the Holy Spirit can do his work with freedom. Psalm 133, the first line of the Psalm 133, you know this. How good and perfect it is when God's people live together in unity. It's a beautiful thing. And even standing here and looking out and looking at what City Hope in all her glorious diversity is wonderful. Listen, don't take this for granted. We've got to keep working at our unity. And we can disagree with one another, you know. That we can, that disagreement doesn't mean division. You know, we, and sometimes, it's a bit of a cliche, but sometimes the cliche, um, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree, is a good thing. We can say that to one another and still love one another. We've got to be able to submit, willingly submit one to another. Not to assume a superiority from whatever, you know, whatever ground you're standing on. Well, yes, I, I've obviously had read far more than them. I'm not, you can see I'm not talking about myself. Or, or, or I've, I've got far more experience than them. Or even, well, I've, obviously I've got more money than them. So I'm in a, We don't do that, do we? And, I, and again, I want to underline, I find, I find City Hope a wonderfully united church. But there's always temptation and there's always the possibility of issues. And there could, be, there could be times where you have had a falling out one to another. Not because you've lined up behind one preacher or another. But there's still that op opportunity for division. And let's stop it quick. No one's ever going to have total agreement, are they? Now, even me and Denise disagree sometimes. Uh, no, no. Uh, no. You find that hard to believe. Denise is disagreeing with me now because I said that. <laughs> Not often, right? Sometimes on a Friday night when it's cold and rainy out and then you think, should we stay in? Yeah, let's stay in. Let's watch a movie on Netflix. Oh, you know. Right? So in, rather than watching a movie on Netflix, Netflix for an hour and a half... We flick through the list of movies for about an hour and a half, <laughs> trying to find one we both agree on. And then you think, oh, it's getting a bit late, let's go to bed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Put, it's not, yeah, I should have gone out, you're right. <laughs> we don't always agree on what movie to watch. But we are one. The Bible tells us that, and I know that to be fact. We are equal. We are both entitled to our own beliefs and preferences, uh, neither, but neither of us are superior in our relationship. God is the superior one over our marriage and over this church. It's our responsibility to humbly follow him as best we can, isn't it? And even then, we might not always agree on everything, but we affirm one another, and we, and we think the best of one another, not, well, what's he done that for? Well, he's done that to wind me up. What's he made that decision for? Stupid. And we think the best of one another. Keep God as the superior 
figure in all your relationships. And he'll instruct you. And we read the scriptures, don't we? And if you don't start, he'll instruct you to love and be patient with one another. Because we are one new person in Christ. It's a wonderful thing when it's done properly, isn't it? There's no longer, Galatians chapter 3, 28 says, There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a powerful thing that is. We take this for granted. Let's be thankful for that. Imagine what the body of Christ could accomplish if we were able to get rid of any division amongst us and stand on what we agree on and make an impact in the world. We've already heard today, got just that encouragement from, from Denise, I agree, I like that, to, to go and just take the power with us when we go to about our everyday business. We have to learn how to disagree without division. The source of our unity, we've, we've underlined this and underlined it, and I unashamedly underline it again. The source of our unity is Jesus Christ himself. Unity isn't a suggestion or an option. It's an imperative of Christ for us. He's the source of unity. It's amazing, isn't it, that we can gather together and have him as our head. And I've, I've, I've had the privilege of traveling to lots of different places in this country and around the world. And you meet Christians in totally different cultures. And, and there's instantly there's that unity. Because we have Christ as our head. We share Christ. We don't even share our language sometimes. I was translated into, I was translated when I was in Uzbekistan once. I was translated twice, if you know what I mean. I was speaking English to a guy who spoke Russian, but we were speaking to someone who only spoke Uzbek, so I had to go down two chains to communicate. And we still had a laugh together because of Christ. Let's practice unity. That verse 10 again says, live in harmony with each other. Now, we're encouraged in the secular world, in the world outside the church, to be a tolerant society. It sounds good, don't it? I'll tolerate you. <laughs> Unity is much more than tolerance. Certain and unity in Christ is what we're talking about. Unity is affirming. Unity is honouring. What is honouring one another through what we do and what we say in harmony, one voice, if you like. Unity is I love you in word and deed coming together. Whoever you are, whoever I am, refuse to pick sides. Refuse to come up against someone. No, you don't understand, Paul. No, I don't. Go and love them. And it may be painful to do it. And you may need to say, take someone with you to do it. But let's not have any broken relationships amongst us. Because Christ is our head. And we've already heard about the blood he shed on the cross, purchasing our freedom and forgiveness to unite us as the body of Christ with the promise of a heavenly home. We've heard that. That's what it's about. Don't let division lead to bitterness. But again in verse 10, it says, Let there be no divisions in the church. But division that goes unchecked will cause bitterness to set in. 
Maybe you've encountered bitter individuals. You think, maybe that's you. Think, no, Jesus, please deal with bitterness. In your loving, caring, gracious way, deal with bitterness amongst us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. The author says, work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Look after each other. That's amazing, isn't it? We look after each other so that we can receive God's grace. And then it says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Bitterness can corrupt us. So the antidote to division is also in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. That's, that should be our byword, shouldn't it? City hope of one mind, united in thought and purpose. We're instructed here that instead of being divisive, to be of one mind, to be united, to think the same, the mind of Christ. Not focusing on the things we disagree on. And some we will disagree on some things. I would suggest there may be different political views held in this room. There might be, mightn't there? There's certainly different football teams are supported. And you think, people laugh about that. I've seen people properly fight one another, not over football. Right? <laughs> it's mad. So rather than focusing on the things we disagree on, let's focus on what we do agree on with Christ. Right? Instead of speaking bad things about others, Speak things to promote them. You know, splits and factions within the church devastate our testimony. If people see division in the church, they'll just say, well, they're just like us. Look at them. Look what they're arguing over. A load of nothing. And I've seen that. It's been visible to all. And you think, no, that's not what we want. I'm not, by the way, I've not seen it in here so much as, as other places. Just to let you know that, it's not you. <laughs> we don't want splits and factions, do we? Christians should never be separated, not by political views or social issues or race or class. Certainly not by personal divisions. The focus of the church shouldn't be, you know, like in Corinth, it shouldn't be on personalities, Paul or Apollos or Peter. shouldn't even be on eloquent preachers. I don't put myself in that category. Our focus should be on Jesus. That's who should dominate our thoughts and our actions. The gospel, the good news, which we've sung about and prayed about and talked about today. Listen, ask yourselves, I'm just about to finish and pray. Ask yourselves, how important is it to you that you're right? How important is it to you to love people the way God loves you? Ask yourself, do I promote unity? Or am I adding to the cause of division by what I say and do to others? 
It's a sober assessment we need to make, isn't it? I think I've really just looked pretty much at one verse today. Verse 10, and I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'm going to pray. The Apostle writes to that Corinthian church after declaring his love for them, and he says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that all of us will love one another, forgive one another quickly, be patient with one another, and accept one another because that's the way you've embraced us. And I pray that in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.